Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Today we'll be taking a trip down memory lane and discussing some of the most righteous hacks we can think of. Whether it be for impact, flair, cleverness, or for being first of its kind, all these hacks are ones you'll want to hear about. So let's get started. Hey, Drew, um, can you tell us what exactly makes a righteous hack? Yeah, a righteous hack. I mean, there's there's a lot of criteria that people would qualify for what makes something a righteous hack. And we have some of these items that we believe make a righteous hack. You might disagree, but what we have is first of its kind, right? So if it's it's if an attack that is first of its kind, that makes it pretty epic in our in our opinion. Flare and what we mean by flare is like showmanship or the flashiness of the attack itself. We have some examples of that later on in the episode. A significant impact. So we don't necessarily have to have a uh, you know very first of its kind. It doesn't have to be super flashy. But if it has a huge impact, if it was, you know, based off of some other vulnerability, weaponized in a very unique way, and then it, you know, crash the stock market and make it lose half its value, that would be, you know, significant impact. And, of course, in, in the age of new computer security in 2021, your righteous hack has to have an excellent marketing team. Because <laughs> and a website. <laughs> and a website and a name. Because if and, it doesn't yeah, have yeah. any of those, does it even exist? Yeah, I probably mean, not. And it has to, the name has to be a backronym. Uh, oh, for sure. I, yep. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's talk about what doesn't make a righteous hack, right? We, we talk, I mean, those are some small examples of, of what can uh, make a righteous hack. But what doesn't make a righteous hack? A marketing uh, team. A marketing <laughs> team. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, for context here. Uh, yeah. Within the past few years, there has been this kind of push for when a vulnerability is discovered. And if that's like via a research team that works at a company or something, like they don't release it until they A, make a website for it. B, pick a name for it. Like, Beast or Spectre or Shellshock or like they, they have to have a catchy name. In many cases, they even make logos for them. Um, and so so we're just kind of joking here in that like, yeah, the, nowadays, in order for you to actually have a righteous hack, you got to have a website for it. Um, but in, in all seriousness, yeah, these websites and names and stuff don't really have any indication as to whether it's truly righteous. There's actually plenty of them that do have a website that are total... Like, I don't know, just that they're not particularly impressive or important. Yeah. I mean, every, everyone can build their own website on Wix or Squarespace, right? <laughs> and uh, so just because your hack has a uh, or your exploit has a website and a marketing team behind it doesn't mean that it is truly righteous. Though the I'm sure the researchers who would fall in this category would disagree, right? The ones yep. who it's like, you have all this, but your hack is kind of lame. Maybe we'll do an ep episode of like attacks that were underwhelming as well. Ooh, right? I like that. That'd be a good yeah. One. But that's not today's episode. Today's episode is only about attacks or or vulnerabilities or exploits that are truly righteous in our opinion. And uh, Logan, you want to start us off with the first one? We're going to be starting off strong with this first one. It's been in the news a lot. Books have been written about this hack. Uh, I believe a movie was made about this hack. And this hack is Stuxnet. Stuxnet was the first public hack of this nature where a nation state put together uh, an, an attack chain which allowed them to target another nation's critical infrastructure and destroy it. And um, uh, what happened was... Stuxnet was put together to target Iran's nuclear centrifuges to uh, delay their 
uh, enrichment program. And what Stuxnet was able to do, it, it was able to first get by the air-gapped, uh, it was an air-gapped system, meaning uh, the controls for the centrifuges, they weren't connected to the internet or any other open networks. Uh, the malware was first introduced, I believe, through removable media. And then when it was introduced to the centrifuges, it exploited a couple zero days, which uh, by itself is pretty huge. Uh, seeing one zero day in, an high, in a high impact attack chain, I, that's unique. But seeing more than one is something else entirely. Real special. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what Stuxnet did was incredibly clever. So it, after infecting the system, it would cause the centrifuges to spin too fast and tear themselves apart. But <laughs> it didn't do this all at once. It actually did it over a period of time. So it seemed, uh, I'm guessing for the operators, I don't know what they were thinking, but uh, it must have looked more just like a buggy system than uh, a, a nation basically waging war. Well, well, and one point of clarification there, uh, from, from what I have read, uh, part of this malware would actually make it look like everything is working as expected. So it actually oh, yeah. infected the centrifuges, controlled them, made them spin slightly too fast, but fast enough for them to tear themselves apart. And at the same time, the metrics that the centrifuges emitted showed the control room like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine down here. Oh, thank you. I, I totally forgot about that point. Key things that make Stuxnet huge. It's the first publicly known uh, critical infrastructure hack I can think of. And by critical infrastructure, I mean targeting a nation's, uh, say, power grid or, say, a dam, big pieces of uh, infrastructure. Yeah, stuff, stuff when it, yeah, and stuff like when it breaks can actually cause harm in the real world. Yes. The, the yeah. physical world. Yeah. And, and then when we say the first, it's like the first where it's, it was clearly a nation state versus a nation state going after the infrastructure itself. Right. Like that was the crazy part with this is like it was clearly a nation state that developed it. It is alluded that it was, you know, the U.S. that deployed this. There's other rumors it was Israel or other countries as well. I think we all agree it was probably the U.S., right? Does anyone disagree <laughs> with that here? I don't. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> it's plausible. Plausible. We'll take we'll take credit for it. It was freaking righteous. <laughs> it, it was righteous. And some some other some other things I want to highlight here. So so when Logan said removable media, uh, the story like that I've drive. heard, yeah, a thumb drive. So so if you've ever had somebody say, "Hey, please don't plug in thumb drives that you find in random places," uh, apparently that guidance did not make it to the Natanz nuclear enrichment facility. Because I, I think there was just like a bunch of USB drives were dropped in the parking lot and people just picked them up, brought them inside and plugged them in. So that's how they jumped the air gap between the internet and the internal network for this nuclear enrichment facility. And ODAs, so a term that maybe some folks here aren't, aren't familiar with, generally speaking, when, when a vulnerability is discovered, you can write an exploit for it. And then let's say that you go and use that exploit out in the wild to accomplish something, right? Well, now that exploit is out in the wild. And if you think about how antivirus vendors work, how various defensive tooling works is they, they try to catch this stuff before they've seen it before, and they mostly fail at that. Uh, but what they're really good at is once they have a sample of malware, they're able to write a signature for it. And then they include that signature in their software so that the next time that software is seen, it is defended against the antivirus prevents it from, from doing anything. So this is to say that uh, an O-Day, which, which references, uh, what, what is, O-Day means like how many days to exploit? What is the, what is the zero for? It's never yeah. before seen. That's where the etymology comes from. Okay, yeah. Yep. So, so never before seen. Uh, and, and again, once you have 
put an exploit out in the wild, there is a countdown timer to when that is, has been discovered by antivirus and basically patched by antivirus, which is to say that ODAs are really, really expensive, especially ones that target like critical infrastructure or widely used systems. For instance, there's a website called Zerodium, which is a thinly veiled sell it directly to the government's ODA uh, sale market, market site. Um, and so if you have an O-Day for modern iOS, then it's like a no, no-click O-Day for modern iOS, which is to say like, if I send a link to somebody, they open it in Safari, their phone is compromised without any further interaction from them. I want to say that the price tag is either $1 or $2 million for that. It's, it's less now, uh, less is than it? Android. Yep. Interesting. Well, the, so, so seeing a single O-Day used in the wild is rare. Because again, once it's used, it's burned and its value goes down. So seeing multiple of them together in a single piece of software is something that there are very few entities that could actually afford to do that, which is one of the things that strongly indicates that this was nation state backed. Not only that, I mean, so one of the things that people often forget about Stuxnet, which I find one of the more fascinating parts, is that there were public and private keys that were stolen from hardware manufacturers oh, yeah. in Taiwan. Uh. So this was to allow for this, 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 any of the software that was being installed to not show up as suspicious or trip any other alarms. So I know Realtek was one of them. And then the other company started with a J. Uh, and, and I forget, I forget what it was, J Micron or, or like, J systems or, or I forget exactly. I, I know Realtek was one of them. Yeah. But it is that was another part that people like often overlook your software, which you're like trusting because it is signed. And, and we have developed even in the world of security, a sense of trust behind these signed pieces of software. This software, this exploit that was used, they were signed. Because yeah. they were using stolen keys. And it just shows you how fragile some infrastructure, like public-private key infrastructure, uh, can be sometimes against sophisticated attackers like nation states, right? Nation states are the most sophisticated attackers when it comes to your attack hierarchy because they have unlimited time. They have unlimited money. That is a thing that, like, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's awesome, it's and, <laughs> it's so crazy because uh, yeah, let's be. I want to be super clear. Stealing a company like Realtek's private keys—that's a righteous hack in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, and that right, was just yeah, a right. stepping stone for yep. Stuxnet. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and and I like I want to want to be clear on one other thing: the trust that we place in signed software is well Everything. placed. <laughs> well placed. Like it's totally reasonable to trust that. Like the crypto works. The method of verification works. The only way that, well, not the only, I'm sure there's other ways that you can attack like the, the verification mechanism or whatever, but the main way that these systems fail is when the key that did the signing is stolen. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll probably have another episode where we actually ta talk about like signature verification and, and honestly, how you guarantee the integrity of software. But when we say the key is stolen, this means that somebody hacked into these other companies, went around their network, got into their like build and deploy systems. And then got the key that only that should only exist there, assuming that they had decent security around it, and and then used that key to sign their own piece of software and make it look legitimate. Well, n not only hacked, they had to break in physically because part of the King system, part of the King infrastructure, is air gapped. Jeez, wow! So they yeah. <laughs> they got they got into whatever safe that the King infrastructure systems were in, and. If they designed their king infrastructure correctly, which I'm sure they yep. did. They're, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar company. So, um, I don't know that, if that means they did it right, but but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that means that there was a physical component to this attack where someone walked in. And both these companies were in the same, like, technology area in Taiwan. I remember that. So they're very close to each other. So maybe, you know, there's speculation that it was an inside attack um, employees that happened to work at 
uh, you know, both both uh, companies that were paid to be able to get this type of material to who was paying them. And there's there's one other piece. Uh, and, and maybe I'll say this and then I'll remember another. Like Stuxnet is so cool it, it, through the right lens. In other lens, it's lens. It's, it's horrifying uh, what was actually possible here. But the sort of like the technical. There's a technical feat. And yeah. the, the technical feat behind it is just just bananas. Um, and here's the other part that is uh, that is that is, you know, myself as an engineer, it's got to be so hard to do this. Like it, And it also indicates that whoever wrote this software had access to an environment that was like a one-to-one image of whatever was actually in the facility. Because so, so this, this network is air-gapped, which is to say that, you know, they, they put the software on these thumb drives. Somebody took the thumb drive into the facility, plugged it in, and then the machine got infected. Now, typically, when you have malware, you'll have what's called a um, command and control channel. So the malware will phone home. And then you're able to control the malware. You're able to tell it what to do. Uh, so, so it's kind of just like your little minion and it's waiting there for your instruction and then you tell it what to do next. There's some flavors of malware that go off and try to do their own thing as well. But generally speaking, the most common malware is all, okay, I've infected this machine. Please tell me what to do next. And that's not at all what happened with Stuxnet. The initial landing point of this malware was not where it needed to be. So this malware spread throughout the entire network automatically couldn't phone home again it's not connected to the internet so it doesn't have any way to talk, call back to the to the folks that authored it so it, it makes its way around the network infects all of these machines and it knows that it's actually looking for a specific piece of hardware that is related to this nuclear enrichment these centrifuges and it finally finds that piece of hardware infects it with a different exploit and then starts manipulating the um, starts manipulating the centrifuges or at least some approximation of it in that order. The point being that despite the fact that this malware was unable to phone home, it had to go through a series of steps and propagate through the whole network to find the target that it was going for. And then it hit itself. It actually made these centrifuges spin faster and made it look like everything was fine. And the the outcome of this is that basically at the Natanz nuclear enrichment facility, they're just like, these centrifuges keep breaking and we don't know why. It must be a manufacturer defect. And it, so, so they... It, I don't remember how it was actually discovered. Do y'all remember how it was discovered? Because it like, I, I, it's just such a good way to cover it up. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah I don't. Oh, it um, it was discovered by uh, because it left that facility and it got picked up by some right. other researchers. Yep. So Ew. and how it was reporting back home. The other thing about Stuxnet is that it used a covert channel for communication. Uh, during that time, there was uh, some huge like football, soccer like games going on, and I'm I'm not a soccer fan, so I don't know the proper terms. Sorry, but uh, th- there was like you know the, the the Super Bowl of the soccer world going on. So Stuxnet, what it was doing is it was sending data out as like web inquiries to football tracking sites or or soccer tracking sites, right? So, so they were saying like, hey, you know, I'm just looking up the scores for these current games. That's what the data look like coming out. And that's not how the researchers found it. But that was like one of the first items that was noted on the uh, attack itself because the actual package or, or the, 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 the whole exploit itself, when it was released to the world by researchers that was like one of the first things everyone was like why why is it sending out all these weird you know requests to to get scores for football games and then people were like oh this is how it's communicating like to command and control uh for if it was to talk to a system that was connected to the internet because again remember it was only supposed to target a very small uh target uh the iranian nuclear program and if it saw that it was out and about to another system, it would kill it and be like, nope, don't do anything. Like, just chill out. Don't do anything. We don't want to, like, we don't need any of that. So it was just sitting around. I mean, it, it affected other PLCs. And the PLC that, I mean, the, the, the system that it affected itself was a Siemens S7 300. And I know that because as soon as Stuxnet came out, I went and I found one on eBay and I bought it. 
I still, I, I still own it. I still, I still have it. Uh, I think you could still buy them on eBay. I mean, they're 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 fairly common. But yeah, this is a it, this was sitting on other people's infrastructure, critical infrastructure, just doing nothing, just sitting mm-hmm. dormant because it was not it was not supposed to be widespread in the sense that it wasn't supposed to affect everyone. So tons of people were infected with Stuxnet and it did absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Only when it saw like, hey, this is on the proper target, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, which is the other cool thing about it, uh, which is why it also was hidden for such a long time because it didn't affect these other systems, even though it infected them. It did not affect them in a way that it was supposed to it was designed to affect the actual targeted system. So, I mean, Stuxnet itself is just a crazy righteous hack. So uh, multiple hacks. Yeah. I think I think that's really the first hack that comes to mind. I'm like, should, what if, if we're going to call hacks righteous? Like that's really the canonical canonical example. And I just well, one other thing I want to point out to to the point that you just made Drew is um so when you write software that is able to self-propagate that you don't have to control in order for it to do that, this is the risk you run, right? So this is this is an incredibly complicated, clearly built by very talented people uh, piece of software. And despite that, they still got discovered. And that I think you can largely tie that back to the fact that this thing will propagate without being given instructions. And so unless you think of every possible chance of how it's going to propagate and why, you're likely going to forget something. It's going to propagate on its own. And then eventually it's going to fall into the hands of a uh, security researcher. And then it will make it into the much broader audience of like, hey, we got some malware here. We need to we need to run this ground. Just to tell you like how groundbreaking like Stuxnet was. When the news of Stuxnet and its capability first came out, there were prominent people in the industry saying this is just hype. Like this isn't true. Right? Like <laughs> this is this is not possible. Like that is how crazy it was. Professionals who are in the industry, like us right now. Yeah. They were saying this is hype. Not, this not is yeah. this is yeah. This is not real. This like, is from the this, this is, is from not the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it was real. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's just how groundbreaking Stuxnet was at the time. Again, this is this is uh, uh, I forget what year it was. What I was in. I was I was in university. So 2010. 2010. Yep. 2010. Yeah. And and the, the last thing I'll say and then we'll, we'll move on to the next one is if you want to learn more about Stuxnet in particular, uh, there's a book that we'd recommend. It's Countdown to Zero Day. It's by uh, Kim Zetter, who's very good, very well reputed. Uh, highly recommend it. There's way more detail than we could possibly share here. And it really dives into even like the geopolitical uh, pressures, impact, like how it was discovered, all the sorts of analysis. It's, it's a great book. Check it out. We should have Kim on the show. Oh, that would be... That would be great. Going on to that next one, we're going to cover a topic called jackpotting. And if you're not familiar with the term jackpotting, it targets ATMs. And it is one of those attacks which we count as flair, right? It is very showy in its demonstration. And what jackpotting is, is it's a software attack against ATMs in which ATMs, the how it counts bills is changed a little bit. So ATMs will usually dispense bills and, you know, $20 bills, right? There's some ATMs that can dispense them in other denominations as well, but 20 is like the most common. And it will say, okay, well, each each bill counts as 20, so we're going to deduct the amount from the requested amount by 20 each time we give out a bill. So you have $200, it's going to give you 10 $20 bills, Well, jackpotting, what it does is it says, yeah, okay, so we only have ones in this ATM. Even though they're 20s, the ATM only thinks they're $1 bills. So it gives you out 200 of those 20s now, Mm -hmm. right? And and this is what leads to a very funny uh, demonstration because when this was first displayed to the public, it was shown... 
on a stage with an ATM spitting out money. Yes. And it was <laughs> it, it, it was very showy in in its uh you know uh reveal and it is hilarious. I I remember like seeing this happen and just laughing because it was like this is this is what It's amazing. Yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. I, I literally thought this is what hacking conferences are about, right? Yep. It's just like this funny, quirky, uh, you know, demonstration. Uh, but it it in itself actually has been done in the real world as well. So criminals have done this against ATMs where they were changing how ATMs were reading the value, right? They're changing it from ones or, you know, oh, you only have $1 bills in here or you have fives or, you know, you have tens and stuff like that. So it would say, okay, yeah. You requested two hundred dollars. Okay, great. Uh, it's uh, you know now we're going to make give that you a ton of yeah. Now now we're going to give you a ton of money, and this is actually this was found uh, in the wild by or there are reported cases of it in the wild, and uh, the Secret Service responds to this type of thing because it deals with theft of yeah, money, and crimes. this was targeting. This is targeting uh, U.S. Uh, ATMs, some of them. I don't actually know if it happened overseas as well. But with that, they had cases where ATMs were like filled up in one day. So they were like newly refreshed. They had new bills put into them. So they're fully stocked. And then at the end of that day, they'd be fully empty and it'd be like, uh, OK, this is odd. Like that doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. So, you know, this this became a, a bigger item in the real world, but it started as a righteous hack on stage at DEFCON. You can look up, I believe there's videos of it that you can find on on YouTube. If you just look up like jackpotting ATM, you know, DEFCON, and I don't know if that's the actual search terms you're going to have to use. Was it Black Hat uh, or DEFCON? I forget. Oh, I thought I thought that. Uh, well, he probably did it at both. One of the one of the hackers summer camp cons. Just it was in it was in Vegas. Yeah, we can leave it at that. <laughs> Vegas. It was probably both. It, it definitely is at DefCon for sure. So jackpot ATM DefCon will show you the DefCon eighteen, you know, video of Barnaby Jack doing this particular attack. Again, it is hilarious, and and it is something that you should definitely look at. But with with all this, this attack though it has some you know purpose, I guess, in, in the criminal world or, or some purpose in the professional security world showing these vulnerabilities that could be done against these ATMs. This attack was mostly done at a uh, in a showy manner. It looks like it was both at Black Hat and DEF CON, Logan, mm. uh, at that year. So that's uh, that that is, I mean, there there are other attacks like that that are showy that target ATMs, but jackpotting is definitely the first one. When when someone says an ATM attack, and and when the first thing I I think about is an ATM spitting out money. Yeah, and, and the one of the other pieces of lore that kind of surrounds this jackpotting attack, and and one of the things that like kind of qualifies it as oh, uh, there's some there's some additional interesting stuff here is one of the individuals involved in this attack. Uh, passed away from somewhat mysterious circumstances. Uh, why it happens, the cause of it, whether it was self-inflicted or, or otherwise, like these are all kind of like points open for speculation. Um, but that did happen around this attack. And so it kind of gave it this additional air of like, ooh, uh, something something weird's going on here. Yeah, the, the researcher, Barnaby Jack, he was uh, known to make other industries very angry because he would just, release awesome research against them and just be like oh yeah these are all your problems so that's that's the other part where people are like oh was it was a big industry that that yeah. like, purposely attacked him and stuff like that so yeah moving on from that one of my personal favorites uh is something called cloud bleed and the the term bleed here is in reference to another uh another righteous hack or righteous vulnerability perhaps is the better way to put it um, but the the term itself is in reference to this company called Cloudflare. So cloud comes from Cloudflare, bleed comes from Heartbleed, Cloudbleed. Hey, we have another marketing term for Ayo. vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know it's official. Um, 
And so if you haven't heard of Cloudflare before, I can pretty much guarantee you you've at least used their services. So Cloudflare is a bunch of different things, but the main the main thing that it's used for and kind of its mainstay uh, as as it applies to the modern internet is they are what we call a reverse proxy. And so if I have my own website and let's say that it's like www.hello.com uh, and I just have that pointing to my server where my website is running. And let's say that my website gets really popular all of a sudden. Uh, let's say that it gets like the Reddit hug of death uh, where just like it gets flooded with traffic. Well, because the www.hello.com points directly to my web server, it takes every single person that tries visiting it goes directly to my web server and that overloads my web server. And one of the ways that I can get around that is by using a tool like Cloudflare. Um, and when you integrate with Cloudflare, when somebody goes to www.hello.com, uh, you actually first, your, your request first goes through Cloudflare and then it might make it to the origin server, my web server that I was talking about before, or the content is already cached within Cloudflare's network. Um, so, so Cloudflare does a bunch of things, but, but the, one of the common trends behind all of these, all these capabilities is when, you, when you're using Cloudflare as a platform, your traffic doesn't go directly to your website first. It goes through Cloudflare's network first. And then Cloudflare has all these additional service offerings that it can give you due to the fact that it is kind of the gatekeeper to your service. Or, or, or your website. And it's like, I love Cloudflare. I use it for all of my personal sites. It's, it's just, it's really cool technology. I know a number of the folks that work there, they take security very seriously. Um, and they are, at this point, I would consider them to be almost like critical infrastructure due to the amount of traffic that is actually flowing through their network. Like they are absolutely a massive player in the modern internet. So, their, their business model is that they continue to think of new ways that, hey, if we are the intermediate party between your consumer and your actual website or some other service, what else can we do? Um, and a lot of it is with an eye towards how can we spend less computing power, less bandwidth, uh, things like that. So, so one of the things that you could do, theoretically, is uh, there's, there's a scripting language called JavaScript. and most of the modern internet runs on it. I think like basically all of the modern internet runs on it. There are other languages that people will write web application, front end web applications in, but they all, I think get compiled down to JavaScript or like WebAssembly or something. Um, but like if my website uses JavaScript, therefore I have to transfer the JavaScript from my website to the client browser. Well, maybe I can actually reduce the size of that file. I could compress it, like, you know, zip it up. Um, or maybe there's unused code in that JavaScript. There's functions that aren't used. There's code blocks that aren't used. Maybe not every file is actually used when it gets down to the gets down to the um, client. So one of the offerings you could do if you're in the middle there is when a JavaScript file gets sent from the server to the client, you can take a look at that JavaScript file and you can minify it, remove spaces, remove dead code, uh, compress it, whatever. And then at the end of the day, you're actually transferring less data. So you're sitting in the middle, you're taking something, you're processing it, and you're sending less data down to the customer. And so therefore, your costs have gone down and your value add has gone up. And I'm not, I, I don't, I, I may get some of this wrong, uh, at least the, the exact specifics. But here's how I remember this working is um, they basically had some utility that would try to either compress or um, clean up HTML when it was going through Cloudflare, right? So I would have my website, my website serves up HTML pages, Cloudflare sees that HTML page and it processes it in such a way that like the amount of space that it's using or the amount of data that it's using uh, is less. And there was a bug in this software and the way that it was, uh, again, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, the way that it would be exploited is if the HTML that your server was serving up was malformatted, like it didn't have a closing tag that was supposed to be there, then when it was processed in Cloudflare, there would actually be a memory corruption vulnerability that was exploited. 
And in the resulting file that was then served up from Cloudflare, you actually got a snapshot of the memory of the machine that ran that computation. And that's not great. Uh, it's it's uh, let me. That's really not great, especially considering like okay, yeah, Cloudflare might be serving up your website, so it's it's processing the HTML for your pages. But Cloudflare, like I said before, is a critical part of the modern internet, so it's serving up traffic for all sorts of different parties. I think like Uber was in there. I remember the dating uh, websites were all in there. And people were like, oh man, you could steal cookies for uh, for like Tinder or Bumble or whatever. Cryptocurrency exchanges were in there. Um, but basically the, the impact of this was, so, so let's say you, you have the Cloudflare infrastructure. My website is being served through it. I have a malformed HTML file so that when I request it, I actually get a dump of the memory within, within the Cloudflare system. And let's say that somebody was also using Tinder at the same time and their request was going through the same server in Cloudflare as mine, well, I might actually get the data from the Tinder request in the response that I get from Cloudflare. Because again, you're getting a snapshot of memory. It's the same node within the Cloudflare network. You're getting an insight or you're getting a dump of memory for stuff that is not related to you. So this basically meant that one of the biggest reverse proxy networks in the world was disclosing sensitive data from all of its customers. You couldn't really target it, right? So I couldn't be like, ooh, I want to get I want to get data from this one of their customers. It was just kind of like spray and pray. But at the end of the day, this was really impactful. So I remember what like one of the big examples was people were looking at um we're looking at the requests for like dating apps. So Tinder and like Bumble and, and other dating apps, they, they would be communicating with their servers. They would have the like authenticating, uh, the, the, the authentication tokens in these requests. So if you exploited this, even on accident, and you got the authentication artifacts for one of these other requests, you could now take over somebody else's account on one of these, um, on one of these dating sites. Uh, another big, big example of, of something that I think was actually happening a lot um, was a bunch of cryptocurrency exchanges also used Cloudflare, and oh, so yeah, right. So so whereas for Tinder, if I see if I see your authentication token for Tinder, I can take over your Tinder account. Well, if I can see your authentication token for Mount Gox or whatever uh, cryptocurrency exchange you're using, then I can actually take over your exchange account. And what can you do once you have access to that exchange account? You can empty somebody's cryptocurrency wallet. So this was huge. Like basically, the impact of this was every single uh, every single business that was using Cloudflare to front its traffic was now at risk of having all of its customer accounts be compromised through this vulnerability. And I can't think of any other cases where there was such a significant vulnerability in a critical piece of like modern internet infrastructure. Um, and 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 so so that's on the impact side. Impacted tons of people. Like. Chances are that sensitive information in some account that you use was disclosed through this, even if you didn't know about it. The other part about this that makes it particularly righteous, and I think this be, might be a bit contentious, is just the way that this hack was disclosed. And there's this guy, Tavis Ormandy, who at the time, I think he still works there, but at the time he did, works at Google Project Zero. And Google Project Zero is this group uh, that does vulnerability research, and they do really good vulnerability research. They have really talented people working there. Incredibly reputable. Yeah, yeah. like, like mm-hmm. they're they're the example that is held up by everybody else when it's like that's what vulnerability research should look like. And now Tavis is he had a pretty good reputation for um, like basically when you if you ever got an email from Tavis, you were going to have a bad day. Because uh, he's really good at finding vulnerabilities, and and as I'm speaking about this, I'm thinking about another righteous hack that I wanted. Like I remember he had this antivirus hack where it was like, oh yeah, it turns out that this antivirus and this password management suite for this is actually like making your computer vulnerable. I'll have to throw oh, that on no. the on the list to talk about it later. But um, so there was a tweet on Twitter from Tavis saying, hey. Does anybody know the security people at Cloudflare? I need to get in touch with them ASAP. Something to that effect. So as soon as people saw that, we're like, uh, I don't think that's how you're supposed to responsibly disclose. Uh, but I'm guessing there's a big problem in Cloudflare. Um, and so sure enough, like he's the one that found this and disclosed it to Cloudflare and to Cloudflare's, uh, to Cloudflare's, 
uh, credibility. Look, they took it really seriously. They fixed it quickly. Uh, you know, they handled it as well as they could on their end. But just generally speaking, it was like, look, this is Tavis. Pretty sure he lives in the Bay Area. He He's at Google. There's no way that he does not have within his network a way to get directly a hold of the security people at Cloudflare. I get like, I could do that. And I'm nowhere near as well connected as him. Uh, <laughs> so it was just, it was curious that it's just like, hey, Twitterverse, does anybody know how to get in touch with uh, Cloudflare? Because, uh, oh, well, if it's Tavis asking, there's got to be a huge vulnerability in Cloudflare. So that was the that was the other part that at least to me made Cloudbleed particularly memorable. I totally forgot about that. How funny would it be if it was him like, oh, yeah, I have a, an open support ticket and I'm just not getting the support. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I, I'd be interested to hear the story behind it. I would imagine that was not his first thing to do was reach out to Twitter. But at the same time, like it, it's there, there's this whole idea of um, responsible disclosure in the security uh, in the security community, which Logan and I have. Drew, I'm sure you have as well, but I've been a part of it. It's a pain in the ass from the researcher side. Uh, uh, I prefer coordinated disclosure. Coordinated. That, that's a much better way to put it. But I'll tell you what, coordinated is not putting it on blast on Twitter. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <clears throat> also, just sell. Uh, <laughs> 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 also, uh, I don't think Mountain Gox was around when the cloud fl- cloud bleed uh, attack. Yeah, happened. yeah, no, uh, no, it was <laughs> it was six feet under by then. But I like the if I recall correctly, the uh, successors to Mountain Gox were all implicated in this cloud bleed uh, issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just had to dig the knife in the Mount Gox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So this next this next uh, righteous hack uh, I'm a fan of, and it is shell shock. So shell shock, of course, has a flashy name, and as as all great vulnerabilities must have now. I think it was um, the first one actually. Wasn't that the first like marketed oh, vulnerability it? with it? I, it, I it think may it might have been. been. Yeah, it may have been. Yeah, I don't I don't know for sure, but those that would jerks. Be, yeah, they ruined it for all of they us. They ruined <laughs> it for everyone. No, I mean, I mean, we, so so just to go on a small tangent, we bash on on exploits having names and stuff like that, but it actually has greatly improved the awareness from other people yeah. who are not, you know, part of the security community to know about these vulnerabilities, right? And I mean, there is utility is, for sure. Yeah, the, the, there are things. I mean, I could say, uh, you know, uh, shell shock. Or I could say, uh, I forget the CVE, it, it is 20, uh, CVE 2014-6271, right? Yeah, it just yeah. rolls off the tongue. It does. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, say it 10 times fast, right? Um, you already have it to memory. But with this, shell shock um, is, it, it may have been the first, I, I don't remember who the first is, but but having these catchy names does provide some type of utility for non-security people in corporations. So when you're talking about a vulnerability to a uh, person that is, you know, kind of technical, but not very technical, you know, I could say MS-08067, which is one of the most, uh, you know, notorious... SMB, baby. Yeah, one of the most notorious attacks um, that was affected Windows XP, and like a lot of security people will know that, but if it had a name tied to it, it would be better f- yeah. if I was discussing it with a board member, right? Or with uh, a CEO or something like that, because they will more readily remember those type of items than, than that vulnerability itself. So with that, going back to Shellshock, Shellshock is one of those items that was huge because of the amount of systems that it affected and how long it had been in code undiscovered. So, Cellshock affected Bash, and and Bash is used in almost every Linux operating every Linux operating system I can think of off the top yep. of my head. Yep, it had been in there for decades. So the first time Cellshock the the code that was vulnerable to Shellshock was placed in Bash was done in like 1989. 
some of our listeners weren't even born by that time. I was only one less than one year old by the time Shellshock came out. By by the time Bash came out, you're older than that. By the time Shellshock came out, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this is true. Thank you, thank you. I uh, well, physically you know, older, mentally, hard. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's uh, that, that's up for debate for sure. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with, with all that, the 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 crazy thing about Shellshock is it got dropped right. And it's like, all right, well, if you use Linux, like most of the world does uh, on the back end, um, you may not use it on like your everyday personal computer, but the websites that you use are more than likely running on Linux. I bet you use more websites that are ran on Linux than the websites that aren't. But even back in infrastructure support, a lot of other items, they're all vulnerable. So it was dropped on the 24th of September. And I remember... This is in 2014. Uh, and, and I was away from the government contracting world uh, at that time. Um, actually, I think Logan and I, I think we were working together at this time in, in 2014. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Um, mm. But in 2014, like two, two days or like three days after it got dropped, it was being used to like scan the DOD. It was being like thousands of systems were or tens of thousands of systems were being affected uh, by this vulnerability. They were being used for, you know, not just to gain access, but but they were then botnets were being uh, deployed to use this vulnerability to get bots and then DDoSing other sites. They were being used to mass scan the Internet. So people were using this exploit to infect systems to then scan large swaths of the internet extremely quickly. And I also remember a lot of the attacks that were coming out of these countries that were targeting these systems. The U.S. and China were like making up most of the attacks coming from uh, Shellshock. So someone was attacking someone in like Europe, right? You had a 50-50 chance that it was someone from the U.S. or China. So it was hugely widespread and we actually, we used it personally. Uh, I remember it like uh, a few years ago. So this is like way after the patch had been deployed, uh, but we had to use shell shock. Uh, and I've had clients that had do this similarly as well uh, to gain access into a system that actually their IT team like lost access to. Uh, and we use shell shock. Uh, and I have a client that has a very similar story, which I thought was hilarious because it was like, you know, three years after the vulnerability had already been patched. But this particular one, again, it's a righteous hack just because it was in code for so long. It hadn't been found for, you know, decades. Once it was found, it was like, all right, everyone's infected. Like, this is a big deal. Everyone has to deal with their stuff. And it's still on older systems that are running Linux that, you know, people are like, oh, this is an air gap system. This is going to be fine. We don't need to update it for whatever reason. That's what their thinking is. Uh, and I, I, I truly can't understand that line of thinking. But but I'm sure someone can quantify it and, and you know, give a, a reasoning that sounds half half OK. It's still around on systems. There are some systems that are nearly impossible to update. And Shellshock still affects them. So it, I forget how many systems it, it affects. I don't know if, if there is a reported number of how many systems that it was actually used against and successfully deployed against. But the number of affected systems is outrageous. Like it is the words do not justify. And that's the part that's the problem with this particular vulnerability. In, in my opinion, it is. Uh, one that is kind of like underrepresented in the world of like, holy crap, this was huge when it comes to a lot of people talking about vulnerabilities, right? We, we, we talk about the Stuxnets and stuff like that, but Shellshock is also one of those. It's just a single exploit, right? It wasn't, you know, done by a nation state, but it is one that affected almost everyone in the world at the same time, even if they didn't know that they were affected by it. And it's... It's still an issue today. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's what I was saying. Like there, there are people that don't have it patched 
right? Yep. And it's, which is insane. It's Those people are totally compromised at this point because this is <laughs> when you when yes. you have a, when you have a vulnerability like this, it will typically be or when you have an exploit like this. So, so we mentioned before how once something once an exploit is dropped, it very quickly makes it into the antivirus community. Uh, also, once an exploit is dropped, it very quickly makes it into the botnet community and is a method of um, method of compromise. So, uh, yeah, I remember Shellshock was very quickly adapted or adopted by uh, by various botnets and then used to scan the whole internet and try to pop machines. And, and Drew, one other one other part that I want to that I want to emphasize here is because of how integral Bash was or is to Linux systems, this wasn't something that you had to be on the same machine for. Right. Like I remember that one of the big things that came out of this is there was like a Metasploit module for testing whether or not a web server was vulnerable to Shellshock because I wanted to like the user agent header was passed on the command line. Like depending on your setup with Nginx or whatever, the user agent was actually on the command line. And therefore, if you put a Shellshock exploit into the user agent string in your HTTP request, that oh, that's could right. then exploit it. Right. Like there, there were yeah. a bunch of internet facing services that had common forms of of like vulnerability to shellshock and so it wasn't just it was like yes because bash is this like integral part of so much of the linux system there are so many different ways that this can be exploited because everything relies on it so it was there was not only something that would be it could be exploited locally on the on the machine but through all these other sorts of uh, internet facing network services it is underrated by the level of impact from individuals who are like adjacent to security, yeah, right? Yeah, and it, it was it was also like one of those ones where when I remember the folks that were responsible for patching it are just like, oh man, come on, really? Like this <laughs> seriously? Because it's patching this sort of stuff is not easy, and so it's like what bash? It's in bash. We have bash everywhere. You're you're kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the other the other part with this is like. It is, as Chris was saying and Logan was saying, it's still seen today. Where I see it the most today is in critical infrastructure, which should make you oh, all yeah. feel great. Yep. Uh, because, you know, uh, you're just totally screwed uh, if anything really bad <laughs> happens. So, <laughs> All right. So on that uh, super positive note, allow me to give you the three takeaways for today's show. One, righteous hacks happen all the time. And most of the time, you're not going to hear about them. Two, everything is vulnerable. Nothing in here was special. If anything, it should prove to you that like impenetrable software does not exist. And three, just because it has a name and a website doesn't mean it's really a righteous hack. We hope you enjoyed this first installment of Righteous Hacks. And rest assured, there will be more to come. Keep in mind when you hear from reporters about how the world is ending because of these hacks, that in reality, these sorts of things happen day in and day out. If you want to protect yourself, give a listen to some of our other episodes. We'll share what we can in the hopes that righteous hacks like these don't come and affect you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.